0: to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings. Today is August 1st, and the August issue of Proceedings, our annual Coast Guard-focused issue, is live now. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Raytheon Missiles and Defense. The SPY-6 family of radars from Raytheon Missile and Defense is not just revolutionary, it's ready now. SPY-6 is being integrated on ships across the fleet to provide greater range, increased sensitivity, and more accurate discrimination for air and missile defense systems. Learn more at rtx.com forward spy6. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to highlight a couple of upcoming opportunities. First, our essay contest, our annual Marine Corps essay contest, has a deadline of 31 August and a top prize of $5,000. And our fiction contest, which we co-sponsor every year with SIMSEC, has a top prize of $500 and a deadline of mid-September. All our essay contests are judged in the blind. To find out more, go to www.usni.org forward slash SA contests. Uh, the second opportunity is, uh, just want to highlight the annual Naval Aviation Tailhook Symposium coming up in Reno, Nevada, 8 to 10, 8 to 10 September. Ward Carroll and I will be there manning the Naval Institute booth conducting podcasts again if you attend hook this year please stop by and see us and now as i mentioned at the start it's august and that means coast guard at the naval institute happy 232nd birthday this month to the coast guard our coast guard our sorry our guest today is commander craig allen the winner of the naval institute's 2022 coast guard essay contest he's joining us from seattle where he has just finished his tour as commanding officer of the us coast guard cutter steadfast a medium endurance cutter, which is based in Astoria, Oregon. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. All right. So um, congrats again on winning this year's contest. I want to tell our audience, you've won not just this year's contest, but five of the past seven Coast Guard essay contests in the past seven years. Uh, and in my editor's page this month, I said that I think that makes you the Alfred Thayer Mahé of the modern day uh, Coast Guard. Uh, and uh, SA contest is five thousand dollars for first place, uh, so I hope you're driving a Corvette these days.
1: <laughs> uh, well, not quite. Yeah, not quite. Um, my wife does have a nice, uh, a nice vehicle, but <laughs> no, no Corvette for me.
0: Gotcha. All right. Well, let's start off by by talking about your command tour. Uh, so, Coast Guard Cutter Steadfast, medium endurance cutter with a very long service life. Uh, so, what was it like to command a ship that was commissioned a decade or more before you were born?
1: Yeah, uh, it was it was a fantastic tour. Uh, Steadfast is 54 this year, and um, I think for a 54 54 year old ship, she's in great shape. Um, certainly better than most most cars that were built in 1968. Um, it's just for perspective. Steadfast was commissioned before the uh, the first Boots on the Moon in uh, 1969. So she, she's been around and uh, she definitely has a, a proud legacy. And when we go out there, do the mission, she we, we do a lot of deployments all the way down to uh, Central America, several thousand miles from our home port, and stay down there for a couple months and then come back and... Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's a testament to the quality of the crew that she's able to continue doing that mission and actually still have quite a bit of success, even though she's certainly not the fastest or the most capable cutter down there. Um, she, the crew was definitely second to none. So that, that made it a pleasure to command.
0: That's awesome. So that, uh, is a nice segue to your winning essay, which is titled Expeditionary Cutter Deployments should not be a mission to Mars. I'll repeat that again for our audio li- uh, listeners. Expeditionary cutter deployments should not be a mission to Mars. It appears on pages 20 to 25 of the August proceedings. So uh, you you alluded to your ship uh, Steadfast being commissioned before um, uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Um, the, you know you, you talk about a mission to Mars, what do you mean by coast guard uh, deployments not that they shouldn't be like a mission to mars
1: so we have a lot of conversations about the logistics and a lot of times it's something breaks and we're we're thousands of miles from from our home port and there are just is there's not a very robust logistics network for a lot of the places that we patrol for us to get the parts that that we need when the system breaks and we were kind of having a conversation about it on the wardroom in the wardroom one night and uh I recently re-watched the the Martian the the movie and I, I said you know we're we're kind of like Mark Watney out here we're we're stuck on Mars and we we've, we've got a problem and we kind of have to science our way out of it because we can't get we can't get any kind of assistance uh in a timely manner it takes takes a long time to get anything out to us and so that I just I thought that was kind of a, a commit commit—I—I a, uh, understand his plight I guess and uh feel feel that way often and then started thinking about that and it's like you know here here we are in the eastern Pacific at least we're still in our hemisphere but look at where the Coast Guard's going we're, we're pushing out into Oceania the western Pacific we're really starting to expand kind of the the, the areas that that we patrol and that was one of the things I I highlighted in the article is just looking at what, what the cutter fleet's been up to for the last year. And uh, my, my friend, Andy Pate uh, he's the CEO of the Mohawk and he chimed in today and he said, Hey, you know, just, just uh, FYI here, we are in uh, Western Africa with a, with a couple of FRCs that are on their way to Bahrain and uh, it's fantastic opportunity, but I think we need to start thinking a little bit more about, uh, building up our logistics network for us to support more of those expeditionary kinds of missions.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, so you riff on an article by Jim, Jim Holmes in 2021, and that article is titled Great Responsibility Demands a Great Navy. And in your article in the, the first page or so, you say uh, with great responsibility comes great logistics requirements. So explain that a bit for our, our listeners.
1: I I did read James Holmes uh article I think I might have been uh referencing the the Spider-Man quote uh with great power comes great responsibility but yeah yeah so um I think that's that kind of gets to the crux of well we have kind of the what we want to do and I think that's that's articulated in a lot of our strategic documents right now certainly in the in the tri-service maritime strategy we have uh several service level strategies that are talking about some of the the mission space that we're looking to move into and some pretty challenging logistics um uh, hurdles that that's going to entail but we don't really talk a whole lot about how we're going to get there so we we have the assets and opcs we're about to about to have our first offshore patrol cutter um that should be coming this fiscal year and hopefully uh, several others Close on its heels, and we've got the the national security cutters. The almost the entire program of record has been built and uh, and completed, and of course the the fast response cutters um, are are doing great, and and we have most of those built already. So so the new fleet is is on its way, and a lot of them are already delivered, and they have these fantastic capabilities: greater sea keeping, more range, more C C five ISR capability, et cetera. But how are we going to support them when something breaks and i think uh it's it's kind of a cliche that the uh, you know the amateurs talk about strategy and the professionals talk logistics but that that certainly resonated a lot more with me uh the, the last four years being on a, a uh, national security cutter and a medium endurance cutter doing a lot of kind of outside of the continental united states deployments and, and just realizing challenging it can be when, uh, we need parts and there just isn't a good, a good way or, or technical support, uh, contractors, um, things that we can't do organically to, to stay mission capable. And I think we're gonna have to start taking on some of those problems if we're going to get after some of those strategic goals that we have as a service.
0: Yeah, no doubt. So, uh, Craig, for our listeners who aren't so aware of the, you know, the, the global mission of the Coast Guard right now, uh, you know, you mentioned that we've got the national security cutters have just been built out. That, that full fleet is almost done. The OPCs and the FRCs, the FRCs are, are coming online. The OPCs are, uh, will soon be in the water. Um, and the, you know, the Coast Guards now, you can see in the news in the past couple of years, there've been Coast Guard cutters that have done Taiwan Straits transits. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Coast Guard cutters. You mentioned uh, Mohawk off the West coast of Africa. So why is all that happening? Why is the Coast Guard pushing out more globally right now?
1: I think it's, it's responding to a demand signal. So there's, there's a, just a more demand, I think, right now than, than we can supply with the number of assets that we have. A lot of the, the engagements, the, just kind of the, the security framework in areas like the Western Pacific, uh specifically south china sea oceania uh talk a lot about the gray zone and kind of how we how we manage that is is when our when our gray holes the more appropriate asset to have on scene and and when might a, a white hold coast guard cutter be be more appropriate or send send the message that we're trying to send and uh, now that we have cutters that that have those those capabilities to, to push out that far and the kind of they can communicate with, with the Navy and integrate with them better now. I think DOD is is asking for more, more Coast Guard presence to, to help them out with some of their missions. And, and I think likewise, uh, State Department's interested in some of what, what we can offer, uh, training, engagements, um, and, and certainly uh, security presence out there as well. And um, we're actually Un, unable to meet the, uh, the demand just with the, uh, the number of assets that we have, but we're, we're kind of doing, doing what we can, um, with, with the, uh, with the cutters. And I think that's, that's evident in especially the national security cutters. If you look at where the majority of their deployments are, uh, recently for a long time, you're, you're seeing them mostly doing East Eastern Pacific counter drug operations. Seen a lot more Western Pacific, Oceania, and uh, up in Alaska um, for for their deployments recently.
0: So in uh, Oceania, I know it's a lot of the uh, illegal, unreported, unregulated uh, fishing mm-hmm. enforcement, right? Stopping, uh, and mu- much of that fleet is uh, is Chinese, uh, but also from other countries where you've got you know fishing vessels that are encroaching on other nations' EEZs and and perhaps those countries don't have the uh, a, a big enough or a capable enough coast guard or navy to enforce their their EEZs. Um, and then you mentioned off the, the uh, west coast of, of Latin America, there's a lot of counter drug operations. I guess that's Caribbean and um, uh, it's you know Latin America as well. And then what what kinds of things are are coast guard vessels doing off the west coast of Africa? Is that also IUU fishing enforcement?
1: Yes, uh, IUU fishing is, is definitely, that's, that's a big both economic and uh, security concern for, for Western Africa. Um, so anything that we can do to enhance the, the security capabilities and I think the, the skill sets of, of the, the Western African partner nations, uh, Coast Guards and Navies to help them uh, secure their own, I think it kind of starts can you can you secure your territorial seas and then once you 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 can do that pretty effectively you know and now it's push out to your 200 mile eez and um, you can see a lot of IUU fishing is happening in that region and unfortunately if if the the nations don't have the wherewithal to to protect their waters they end up getting Getting depleted of their resources, so that's a that's a mission that the Coast Guard is is very good at, and we're certainly uh, very, pretty um, fluent at doing the partnering with with them to get them out there and, and help them out mm-hmm. with that. So um, I think that's what what we're seeing right now with with the Mohawk and the Thetis uh, earlier this year was out there as well. So um, definitely a a big concern uh, both from a security and and, and economic. Perspective for for West Africa. Um, certainly, there's a piracy element to that as well, and so doing doing the kinds of um, infrastructure protection, ship uh, shipboard protection, those those kinds of things to to counter the piracy threat is is another priority for that region as well.
0: So your article that doesn't just hint at; it's very specific about this. You know, feeling like when you're when you're on a deployment on a Coast Guard. Cutter, and you're a couple thousand miles, maybe ten thousand miles from from home port. Uh, it feels like you're on the other side of the of the moon, the dark side of the moon, or or on Mars, perhaps, right? And so you're way out there. Logistically, you're you're unsupported. It's not like uh, for our Navy members, you know, myself included. You know, the Navy's got this incredible logistics train. We we are, are constantly pushing carrier strike groups forward. We've got the combat logistics force. We've got you know, oilers that are coming out and, and bringing us fresh fresh fruits and vegetables and and pol and all that stuff, right? And and you know, uh, carrier onboard deployment, uh, carrier onboard delivery aircraft, or now it's mm-hmm. the uh, the MV Twenty Two, you know, delivering mail and those kinds of things. But so back to steadfast in your time as uh, as CEO. So you deploy off the west coast of, of Latin America. Um, you know, what kind of logistics support did you have? You're what two three four thousand miles are you going down as far as far south as as chile how far how far south are you going
1: not not quite that far um i'd say you know probably costa rica is is as far as as far as we got on this last patrol um but certainly far enough that our our u.s based logistics network started getting strained so just kind of a to illustrate kind of how the process works um let's say we've got a part on one of our cutter boats that goes down and our cutter boats are kind of our, our main um, asset that we use for, for intercepting the, the fast moving drug smugglers. So Is that we, also
0: like a rib? Is You call it a cutter boat?
1: Is it a rib? It is. Yeah. Rigid hole inflatable over the horizon capable can, can go about 40 to 45 knots in uh, calm seas and we can push it out probably 50 miles from the cutter if, if we need to for a pursuit. And steadfast has two of them, but it's been a, a challenge, a huge challenge for the time that I was on board to keep both of them, or even sometimes to keep one of them operational for an entire patrol. Because, you know, what what they're built to do is is go out and, and run fast. And you know, you run a boat like that, and and you beat everything up, and you're you're taking on a lot of salt spray, and there's a lot of electronics on that thing, so it's a challenge to keep it operational. Um, there was one scenario, we were down there with another 270-foot cutter, and both of our cutter boats were down. Well, actually, one of our cutter boats was down. We couldn't launch the other one because the davit was inoperable. So we didn't we couldn't put a boat in the water, which raises a, kind of a safety concern in addition to an operational concern. So we needed another cutter boat, or yeah, we needed another cutter to supply a cutter boat because the part that we needed, they had to take it from a warehouse in uh, Maryland, and fly it to an airfield in Florida, and then from there to another airfield, I think to El Salvador for that one, to get on another aircraft that would then uh, fly over us and and drop the part out by parachute. And that that whole wow. that whole train took a uh, little over a week from need to delivery. And it's pretty neat, pretty neat that we can do that, but it's it's certainly not not an efficient process. And in the meantime, we were kind of stuck. Uh, unable to do the mission so we we rendezvoused with this other Coast Guard cutter and said hey can you guys put your cutter boat in the water to go retrieve this part that we need and they said sure and they had two cutter boats as well one of their boats was down and then once they launched their one operational boat they tried to start it and it wasn't starting we kind of had this moment where we were saying uh oh uh we might both be kind of stuck because between four cutter boats out here, we, we might not have any of them that are actually working, and uh, then we'd, we'd be in a bit of a pickle. So, uh, fortunately, they were able to get that other cutter boat started. We got our part. We were able to repair and uh, kind of be on our way, but it's it's not an uncommon scenario. Uh, cutter boats in particular are just, they're finicky, and it's tough to keep those things running. So, I kind of my fantasy is to have sort of a, a cutter boat pool somewhere in in Latin America, that if, if one boat goes down, you can swap it out. There's a team there that can repair it. You can take on a, another one that works and, and be on your way and, and keep doing the mission. Without that, it's, you're coming out of luck. Um, once, once they take some casualties. So, um, that's in its cutter boats, it's a lot of electronics. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I talked a little bit about trying to, enhance the the uh, organic resilience of the cutters because because the the supply chain is pretty difficult so what can we do to try to make the the cutter itself more resilient so if you do lose one system there's there's a backup system and it will keep you operational at least long enough to to get back and repair the whatever was wrong and we do have some redundancy but there's certainly a, a number of systems that that we need and rely on that if it goes down, or kind of out of luck.
0: Yeah, so that gets to uh, the, the part of your article where you, you you have some ideas to fix this problem, right? To make to make perhaps uh, the you know, the surface of Mars be a little closer, at least uh, you know the Moon, or or, or closer than that. Um, so I, I jotted down the the, the three main ideas uh, from your article. One was self-sustainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was forward operating bases and one was uh, the possibility of the Coast Guard coming up with a mission support cutter. So you you just talked a little bit about self-sustainment uh, on cutters. Are you, you know, in, in that vein, are you talking about uh, machine shops? Are you talking about the ability to um, maybe do 3D printing uh, of, of replacement parts on board the cutter itself? Um, you know, what kinds of things could you do on board uh, your cutter or a national security cutter that would make the ship itself be more self-resilient?
1: So you mentioned the 3D printing, and I have seen uh, actually a couple articles recently that that the Navy is, is starting to bring that capability online for, for some of their ships, um, including, I think I saw recently uh, an aircraft carrier might have gotten a liquid metal 3D printer uh, installed. Which, to be honest, I don't, fully understand what that, what kind of capability that delivers, but it sounds pretty neat. Um, So realistically, we're, the Coast Guard probably isn't going to see anything quite to that level for a long time, Uh, but anything that we could do to, to allow a crew to, to create a part organically that, you know, if we, we kind of know what our common fail parts are and we can carry some spares, others, others we don't have. If there was a way that we could manufacture that, whether it's having a, a machine shop, um, kind of bringing back that, that capability, uh, 3D printing, um, what, what have you. I think that would be a phenomenal uh, investment for, especially as, as we turn to more expeditionary missions uh, for those cutters. Um, so, and then the, the other idea the mission support cutter. Um, you mentioned, you know, the the USNS fleet that kind of the auxiliary ships that support the the naval combatants when they're deployed. Um, you know, we kind of look at the the development of, of why we have those ships and, and sort of tracing the history of, of the Navy as, as the Navy started projecting further and further from the US and taking on more and more expeditionary missions that just naturally evolved because because of the need. Um, and I think we're seeing a similar evolution right now in the Coast Guard where we're starting to expand a lot more into more expeditionary missions, but we haven't really developed that that support um, auxiliary function yet. And that's probably something that we wanna start thinking about looking at the, the Navy's uh, logistics infrastructure and emulating it to a scale that makes sense for a much smaller service, but a service that is covering a lot of the same kinds of kinds of tyranny of distance um, with our missions.
0: Um, you know, I know that the uh, there's a lot of uh, now Coast Guard fast response cutters. Is it five or six, or maybe even more than that? They're in Bahrain, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're they're kind of taking the place of the Navy Patrol Coastal class, the small mm-hmm. PCs, as the Navy phases those out as they get decommissioned. So for the the um, the FPCs that are forward in Bahrain, are they are they teaming up with uh, with naval forces in Bahrain or do they are they out there alone and having to do self-sustainment? Is that is that like a a separate fob for them uh, in Bahrain? Do you know?
1: Yeah, actually Bahrain, I I would say, is an example of a a logistics infrastructure that works pretty well. So so I was out there on a hundred and ten foot patrol um patrol boat that was back in 2010 so i guess my experience is a little dated but um staging out of bahrain we also had uh, the Kuwait naval base that we could pull into and then various ports around some of the the uh, the gcc nations that we worked with and that was actually a very effective uh support network if we needed something it was it was pretty easy to get that flown out to to uh naval base we call kmb um you know we'd steam there from from wherever and we could we could probably get whatever we needed within uh within about 24 hours unless it was uh a part that wasn't already stocked in the warehouse that had to come from from stateside um that was good working relationship between coast guard and and the navy there and i thought that actually worked really well what i think we had going for us though was just the scope of the area that we were working within was, was significantly smaller than something like the Eastern Pacific or certainly the Western Pacific. Now we're talking about tens of thousands of miles versus hundreds of miles.
0: Yeah. So much smaller uh, geographic area in, in navcent or CENTCOM area, particularly in the Persian Gulf um, and, and a large presence already of, of, US naval forces and other forces there too. So um, when a combatant commander, let's say US Africa command uh, Mm -hmm. requests a Coast Guard cutter presence or US Southern command, right, is looking for a Coast Guard cutter presence, um, do they not assume some sort of responsibility for your logistics support?
1: They, they do. Uh, And so there's, there's kind of a, a relationship between the j4 for the combatant command that that we'll work for and then our uh department of logistics and um i'd say that that seam is it's not a seamless process just yet but i think because we're doing it more we're starting to iron out some of the some of the kinks that that were there um and so when we go for the counter drug mission uh, down in the eastern pacific we're working for the joint interagency task force south underneath uh, U S Southern command. So their, their J four does a lot of the logistics coordination for us, but they, they can only really work with what they have. And what they have is, you know, kind of what I was describing before a a capability to airdrop certain parts that aren't too big or too fragile, and sometimes get them shipped into countries that, that we can pull into. Problem is though, you, you ship a, you know, something that some kind of electronic widget into a country like Mexico, now it's got to clear customs before we can get it. And let's just say that there's there's several customs uh, departments in some of our partner nations down there that probably have significant inventory of Coast Guard parts that never <laughs> never made it through that, that pipeline. They just, it, it takes a long time or, or they might not make it. So um, that's, that just kind of adds friction friction to the system. Um, because we do have to rely on a lot of external entities to uh, to get what we need.
0: Yeah, that makes a very good point. Because I remember aircraft carrier deployments to the to the Middle East to to Navcent and uh, to the Persian Gulf, um, and I remember hearing you know conversations from the N four talking about you know things clearing customs, but that was at the end of a conveyor belt that had been in in process for years, right? Mm-hmm. And so getting parts to Bahrain is one thing when you've done it day after day after day for nigh on 30 something years now. Uh, whereas getting a part to, um, uh, you know, Ecuador, uh, a, a one-off part to Ecuador for a one-off ship deployment that might pull in next week. Yeah. That's, that can get a lot. Yeah, that's a lot hairier. I can see how that would break down, um, you know, a lot more frequently than, uh, than getting a part to, you know, an aircraft carrier uh, off of Bahrain. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get back for a minute to the uh, the idea of a uh, mission support cutter. Is there any traction? Is that a, is that a new idea that you you're just floating here or is that something that the Coast Guard is talking about about, you know, building a dedicated logistics ship essentially for uh, forward deployments for cutters.
1: I think it's it's an idea that it's it's been tried tried out in uh, different scopes and scales over the years Uh, i think at one point there was a one of the expeditionary uh, fast uh, catamaran holes down there that was designed to kind of have an auxiliary function and we we have had different variations of, of support ships in the past but but nothing really that that delivered anything close to the capability that you know, the, a Navy ship uh, operating would, would get from the from the USNS fleet. I did have the opportunity once uh, when I was down there during kind of a, we had a counter drug surge operation and we had several uh, Navy DDGs down there and, a, and an oiler supporting all of the assets in the Eastern Pacific. And I was down there on, on the national security cutter. And that was incredible because you need fuel and it's there, you need fresh produce, they can fly it over. And so I kind of got a glimpse into, you know, how the, how the Navy gets, how the Navy operates. And uh, so that was kind of in the back of my mind too, uh, because that, once the surge op ended, the Euler departed theater and we're kind of back to where we were before. Um, So that's a dedicated Navy support ship. We probably don't need something quite to that scale for for what we do, but I think it would be uh, some, phenomenal return on investment to have something that there's a lot of things that you could take off of the the hands of of the cutter crews uh, detainees is a big one there's there's certainly some political hurdles to that but if we hold a lot of detainees um, that we we have from different interdictions and we're not built for that we don't have facilities specifically designed for that so if if there was a support ship that could that could take them and and hold on to them and, and something that was kind of more specifically designed for that mission, that would be ph- phenomenal. Uh, having technicians on board who are really good at at troubleshooting a lot of the the things that come up on some of the complex uh, systems that maybe the the ship's force doesn't always have the the training to troubleshoot on their own. 3D printing capability, th- those kinds of things. Uh, I think there could there could be a huge value add to having one or two of those supporting the major cutter fleet, and certainly the, uh, the patrol boat fleet down there.
0: Is that something that you would see either a white hull or black hull, uh, you know, coast guard dedicated ship with coast guard manning on board, or is that something that you could contract out? In other words, you get a, uh, uh what do they call it an OSV offshore support vessel that, mm-hmm. that the kind of ship that goes out and supports oil rigs, for example, for the, the commercial, uh, you know, oil and gas uh, industry. Um, is there a a, a, a preference either way or is that something that you know perhaps uh, start with the commercial and experiment it and then mm-hmm. see if uh, see about building something a some more dedicated platform to the coast guard
1: yeah i think uh rather than try to design it from scratch and and build it because that's that's a long process and, and pretty expensive I, I think there's a lot of other existing hull designs that would be uh, suitable for that purpose and f- as far as crewing um i think kind of the 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 way the the USNS fleet is crewed with kind of a mix of of active active duty military and, and civilian might might be a good um, might be a good model to, to take a look at and um, so that that way you've got some some blue suitors on there um, but you there's there's a huge you know a kind of different topic different article but uh, definitely there's we're having a hard time manning the fleet or at least getting enough people excited about going afloat to kind of fill all the billets that we have for our existing cutters. So if we were to create more billets, that's going to create a, a stronger demand signal. But I think having the po- possibility of integrating some civilians into uh, something like that, that might be a really effective way to, to address that issue.
0: Cool. All right. Well, uh, Craig, unfortunately, we're out of time. It's been great to have you on the show. Uh, our guest today has been Commander Craig Allen, U.S. Coast Guard. He's the winner of the 2022 Naval Institute Coast Guard Essay Contest. He's also won five of these contests. Uh, so congrats on being um, not just a one-time winner, but it's like you're a, a, a Tournament of Jeopardy uh, champion. Uh, and um, his article is titled Expeditionary Cutter Deployments Should Not Be a Mission to Mars. You can find it in the August issue of Proceedings or online at usni.org forward slash proceedings. It's right on the proceedings homepage. uh, So you can find that uh, very easily. Uh, It's great to have you on the show and uh, congrats on another Coast Guard essay winner. And also, Craig, uh, good luck with your your PCS move.
1: Thank you so much, Bill. (laughs) Appreciate it.
0: Um, That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings podcast. Thanks to our producer, Heather Legg. Uh, And this episode is brought to you by Raytheon. Raytheon Missiles and Defense, setting the pace of performance With the SPY-6 family of radars actively being integrated across the fleet, SPY-6 provides the clearest possible picture of the battle space with modular multi-mission capabilities that make it the most advanced radar on Earth. Learn more at rtx.com forward slash SPY-6. Until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.